My name's Tom. I'm an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink since July 20th, 1965. And for that, I'm grateful. I'm still trying to figure something out. I got up here on the stage, and Joanne reached over and took my hand and said, I want you to know I go to bed with you every night. And she's going to have to explain that to me, and I'm almost afraid to ask her to do so. How many other alcoholics out there? Let me see your hand. You're a good-looking bunch of diseased people. How many al <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Have a story. This alcoholic and his al wife and their kids were driving through the country one night, and they ran out of gas. And so they walked and walked and walked and came to a farmhouse. And the farmer came to the door and he says, Yes, you can spend the night, but I only have room for two in the house. Somebody will have to sleep in the barn. And the kid says, We'll sleep in the barn. And they go out to the barn, you know, and 15 minutes later they come back in the house. They say, We can't sleep out there. The animals are keeping us awake. They're disturbing us. The alcoholic says, Well, I'll go out there. She goes out to the barn. Fifteen minutes later, he's back in the house. Said, "I can't sleep out there either. Those animals disturb me." And the Alanon says, "Well, I'll go." <laughs> she goes out to the barn. Fifteen minutes later, the animals came in the house. Now, I wouldn't say that if I didn't love you and respect you. I'll tell you that right now. I know some black belt Alanons in Charlotte, North Carolina, who practice the program so much better than I do, and I'm serious, that it makes me envious sometimes. Some of these people who come in beside us grow in strength and understanding and wisdom and love like nothing I have ever seen. And I personally am oh so grateful for the program of Al-Anon, and I mean that with all my heart. I've had a good couple of weeks. About two weeks ago, I watched my son pick up his first year chip in this program. And, uh, and last night he invited me to hear his first talk in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I sat and looked at him, and I loved him, and he's so handsome and, and slim and wonderful and nice and loving, and, and he was such a bastard before he got here. <laughs> and you see, it happened one more time, this wonderful transformation that takes place in this program in a very short time. It's amazing. You know, we have the benefit of being the members of the finest, most effective, life-changing program on the face of God's earth. There is nothing that is better. It is absolutely miraculous what happens to people when they become desperate and get up enough desire to take directions and then begin to bloom like a beautiful flower. And it's a good thing to watch, and I love to see it happen. I love to see it happen to alcoholics. I love to see it happen to Alanons. I love to see it happen to anyone. Because you can see God creating when this happens. It's like recreation, you know? And you see God in every breath and every move, and, and it's, it's fantastic to me. It boggles my mind. I don't understand it. But then there's a lot about this program that I don't understand. And I probably never will, and that's okay with me.
I'm an intellectual, so I almost died. Can you imagine anyone trying to explain his recovery to an intellectual? You say to the guy when he says, you've been sober almost 28 years, you must be very strong. You say, no, sir, I'm very weak. He says, that makes no sense. He says, I know. I know it doesn't. Well, you must have fought really hard to overcome alcohol. No, sir, as a matter of fact, I surrendered. Well, that makes no sense. I know. Well, what do you do to stay sober? I go to meetings. Aha, group therapy. No, sir, it's not group therapy. It's just a bunch of drunks get together, sit around, mostly lie to one another. <laughs> and he said, well, that makes no sense. You say, I know. Well, what else do you do? Well, I have this sponsor. Aha, a psychotherapist. No, sir, he's a plumber. <laughs> and he says, well, that makes no sense. You say, I know it doesn't. Well, what else do you do? Well, I have this program, you know. Aha. The greatest therapists and metaphysicians and philosophers and doctors and theologians in the world got together and, and formed your path to get out of your dilemma. I said, no, sir, it was put together by a bunch of drunks. And he says, that makes no sense. And I say, I know. Anyone in here who's trying to understand this program and comprehend it with the intellect is dealing with a losing proposition. The spiritual is so much greater, so much broader, so much higher, so much wider than the intellectual. That is fantastic. It cannot be understood. The spiritual deals with paradox. We do surrender to win. We give it away to keep it. The intellectual mind cannot comprehend that. It's not logical. But then it's not logical for me to be sober tonight either. I'm an alcoholic by definition. I should be drunk and probably dead and left to my own devices. I would be. But I'm not. Thanks be to God in this program. Now, when I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean I'm the kind of person who's always believed that anything that feels good should be done to excess. Any of y'all like that? I don't know. I doubt it, you know. If it feels good, overdo it. And I've had problems with food and gambling and sex. I remember when I found out sex felt good. I was by myself, just like all of y'all were. <laughs> and in spite of dire warnings from my mother, <laughs> a certain part of my anatomy was going to rot off, and I was going blind, I decided, well, I'll keep on till I'm nearsighted. It was one of my first successes in life. <laughs> and I found out it felt good with somebody, <laughs> and all hell broke loose. When I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean I'm the kind of person who is a great starter and a poor finisher. I've always had two basic speeds, full speed ahead and stop. Anything I went in to do, I went for the top, and I went there fast, and I went full speed ahead, and usually because pain and suffering and problems were right behind me, and I was running from them as hard as I could. Full speed ahead. Then when things would get good and it'd get smooth, I'd put it on stop. Doesn't sound like a big problem, does it? I look around me in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I see person after person after person come into this program full speed ahead with a hurt behind them and a great desperation 
And they start feeling better, and the wife speaks to them again, and the kid speaks to them again, and the dog licks them again, and in to stop, it goes. And they go out and get drunk again. Not a small problem. I'm an alcoholic. I mean, I'm the kind of person that likes to do everything at once and do it all perfectly. You know, if I got three or four things to do, I'm going to do them all, and I'm going to do them all right now. I'm talking about things like trying to pee and comb my hair at the same time. <laughs> now, a woman may be able to do that. I don't know. Can you? She can do it. She, this lady up here can do it. But when you're six foot three, you ain't hitting the bowl and comb your hair at the same time. <laughs> Psychiatrists call that the obsessive-compulsive syndrome. <laughs> I call it the Tasmanian devil syndrome. Taz on the Bug Bunny show running through the trees, you know, and stops and growls every once in a while and runs through another tree. That's me, like a yo-yo or a ping-pong ball, you know. I say I'm an alcoholic. I mean I'm a person who lives in a body that will not handle alcohol. It never would. Some people tell me that's because I have a biochemical genetic disorder having to do with the hypothalamic information control center in my brain. Others tell me that the acetaldehyde, which is formed when I ingest ethyl hydroxide, is converted into tetrahydroisoquinoline in my brain and I lose control. Alcoholics Anonymous says I'm allergic to alcohol. Take your pick. I just know this, when I put alcohol into my body, my body sent me a clear, direct, and instant message. And it went like this, get me some more of that stuff and get it right now. I understand what Dr. Silkworth was talking about when he talked about the phenomenon of craving. I felt it from the very beginning. And this body is so constituted that it's always going to be that way. I can no more handle alcohol physiologically today than I could the day I quit, and I know that because of this program. And I have a mind that kept telling me that if I figured out a way I could make this body handle alcohol, someday, somehow, if I just handle it right, I'm going to be able to drink like everybody else. And you know, there's two or three lies in that. First, I can't do that. And deep inside, I knew that. And second, I never wanted to drink like everybody else. You know that? I never did. I couldn't understand those people. You know, even today, they call people like you and me alcohol abusers. You like that terminology? I don't like that. Anybody ever in here ever put a hurting on Jack Daniels? <laughs> Who abuses whom? You know? And these people that come up with these labels for people that go to these things called cocktail parties. You ever thought about that word? You think about that word a while, it'll tickle you, cocktail. And these people go to these cocktail parties and they, and they chit-chat. That means I talk at you and you don't care what I'm saying. You talk at me, I don't care what you're saying. We're just putting in our time at this cocktail party. And these people take perfectly good liquor and start putting mess in it. Put Pepsi-Cola in it, Sprite, club soda, water, tomato juice, orange juice, milk. And that's not bad enough. Then they start in with the vegetables, you know, onions and celery and carrots and all that kind of stuff. And olives, and then they put fruit in it, you know, a little orange, a little apple, a little lime, a little banana, squirt whipped cream on top of it. Take one of those umbrellas with a straw on top of it, you know, and stick it down in there and suck on it. <laughs> now, when you take good alcohol like that and put all that shit in it, that's alcohol abuse. 
I didn't want to drink that way. I wanted to say to those people, take all that crap. Have fun with it. Give me the booze. I'll drink it. I know what it's for. I'm not an alcohol abuser. I was an alcohol user. And I used it for its one and only purpose because I love the effect it produced in me. And that's the only reason for its existence. And I haven't had a drink in almost 28 years. You know? The ping pong ball. The feel-good man. The guy that suffered from mental obsession that was beyond his control. The guy that lives in a body that won't handle alcohol. is sober. Why? Because I've been transformed. You hear that? I've been transformed. I have been radically and deeply and fundamentally changed by this program into a brand new person. That's something, ain't it? And it's happened through spiritual growth. And I didn't have to figure out how to grow spiritually. All I had to do was follow the numbers. Isn't that something? You know? That's really something. You know, just follow the numbers. How do I stay sober that long? Follow the numbers. Any rummy can count, as Clarence S. used to say. You know? Spiritual growth, strange thing. It's not growing up, it's growing down. Like a spiritual teacher said, you want to find what you're looking for, you have to turn around and become like a little child again. Now, either they meant that or they didn't. I believe they did. And every program of spiritual growth I've ever known about, there's a death, and there's a rebirth, and there's a regeneration. The old self dies and a new self is born and a totally new person comes into being. And that's what's happened to me. And I'm so grateful I can't even talk about it. And it blows my mind that a bum like me could cease being a bum and be a pretty good man. It wasn't always that way. And I'm going to tell you about the way it was tonight, some of it. I don't have time for all of it because I believe what my sponsor says. He says, you never have to be alone again unless you talk over an hour. (laughs) So if I go over, please don't tell him, you know, but I'll try not to. And I want to tell you about my life and my death and mainly my rebirth and my regeneration. That's what's important. As far back in my life as I could remember, I was afraid. But I had no idea what I was afraid of. And I was angry. I was in a rage most of my life, and I didn't know what I was mad about. I was guilty all the time, and I couldn't figure out what it was that I had done wrong. I was ashamed, and there was no reason for it. And at a certain level, I always felt like a loser, you know, a failure, an outcast, a not-belonger. I had good reason to feel that way, too. I was the ugliest baby you ever saw. You know how I know that? My mama told me. My own mama told me she had never seen an ugly baby before I was born. Now, I told a psychiatrist about that one time. He said, ooh. 
Oh, that must have been traumatic for you. <laughs> I said, no, sir, I've seen my baby pictures. Mama's right, I was ugly. <laughs> and as I grew, things didn't get much better. I was a skinny little old boy. I was one of those little boys whose shoulder blades protruded real bad in back, and I, I, I was shy about that and self-conscious about it, so I tried to bend my shoulders around and make the shoulder blades come in. When I did that, my chest disappeared. And my mother never liked me, I knew that, because she made me wear knickers. Any of y'all ever have to wear knickers, any of you guys? My leg was this big, and the knicker hole was this big, and those things were always falling down. Man, I hated them. Brown corduroy knickers. Somebody told me not long ago, said, Tom said, knickers are coming back. I said, not on my ass, ain't. And on top of being skinny, you know, I had freckles. I, I love people that have freckles. Don't get me wrong. I just couldn't stand them on me. I had freckles where people had never reported having freckles before, you know? <laughs> they were everywhere. And I didn't like them. And I always wanted to be a macho man, big and strong, you know? And my mother had four great big old brothers, my Uncle Lloyd, my Uncle Cedric, my Uncle Glenn, and my Uncle Durwood, who they called Dud, and he was my favorite. He's my hero. And Dud was a motorcycle cop back in the days when they wore riding breeches and leather spats up to their knees. And he had a, a leather harness across here with silver bullets in it and a pearl handle 38 set high on his hip. You know what I'm talking about? The man squeaked when he walked. It smelled like gunpowder and shaving lotion. By God, that's macho, and that's the way I wanted to be. And the only time I wasn't afraid, angry, guilty, and ashamed was when I was sitting behind him on the motorcycle holding on. Even then, I felt better in the presence of a higher power. In addition to the freckles and the skinniness, I had this great shock of snow white hair. And you know what my uncles all call me? Pudding head. <laughs> and last time I checked the list of macho names, pudding head was not on it. <laughs> and I didn't like me. I didn't like my appearance. You know, I used to figure, well, if the freckles will go away, everything's going to be okay. At the age of 12 or 13, they was replaced by the ugliest set of pimples you ever saw in your life. Other kids had little zits, you know, they pop them out. I had cysts and balls and risins. You know what risins are, don't you? People laugh about that. Damn, it's funny when you have one on your butt, I'll tell you that. And I hated it so bad I'd take my daddy's razor and shave off the side of my face. What I'm trying to say is I saw nothing about me that was the way I felt it should be. I was ugly. I didn't fit. I was scared. I was mad. I was guilty. Now, I don't want to tell you all the bad stuff about my childhood. There were some good times in my childhood. And I think too often we spend too much time talking about, or I do, about the bad things in our childhood and, and forget about some of the good ones. I came from a wonderful community, a little textile mill town down in North Carolina is where I was born. And everybody on that block was like family to me. You know what I mean? We were a big extended family. And I felt valued there, and I felt safe there, and I felt secure there. And my father was the finest man that ever walked the face of the earth, the sweetest, gentlest, simplest, nicest human being I have ever known in my entire life. And I felt fortunate to have him as a father but I felt it was unfortunate for him to have me as a son. I remember the lady who lived next door. Her name was Lena. And Lena was the best cook on the block, and she was also the best eater on the block. And Lena was fat. 
And I remember hugging Lena. I used to love to hug Lena. When you hugged Lena, you had a breast in both ears. And there was nothing sexual about it. It was just like being surrounded by warm flesh, you know. And she'd pat me on the head and say, I love you, Puddin'. And I knew she did, you know. And my mother, I love my mother, the black belt Southern Baptist mother that I've got, you know, who would breathe for me tonight if she could. Okay. And Martha, the first little girl I ever played doctor with, you know, I remember her, you know. And I remember going to the movies on Saturday, and it cost nine cents to go to the movie. And for nine cents, you could see a double feature western and a couple of good serials like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and some good cartoons. I mean, funny stuff, not this monster stuff. And a box of popcorn was a nickel, and we didn't have any money, and the man that ran the theater lived next door to me, so all I had to do was stick my box out there and get more popcorn. Fourteen cents on Saturday, I'd spend the whole day at the movie with my heroes. And my heroes were Hopalong Cassidy and Charles Sterrett, the Durango Kid, and Rocky Lane. You remember these people? You kids have missed something, I'll tell you. And Wild Bill Elliott. Wild Bill wore two silver six-guns turned backwards. And you draw down on Wild Bill, he'd spin them guns around and shoot the gun out of your hands. See, cowboys in them days was polite, man. <laughs> they, they didn't shoot each other, they shot the guns. Y'all remember that? Last movie I saw Western recently, there was guts blown all over the damn pasture. You know, we got to have everything so graphic now. While Bill was polite, it's almost like he'd say, hold it out a little further and I'll shoot it. You know, then he'd spin those pistols back into his holster and I'd get chill bumps all over me when he'd do that. My favorite cowboy was a dude called Lash LaRue. Lash LaRue was the coolest of the cowboys. And they called him Lash because he carried a bull whip. Lash, you draw down on Lash, he whipped the gun out of your hand. I just love Lash, man. And I was watching old Lash one day, you know, and, and he was standing up on the roof of the saloon, and he already run the bad guys out of town, and he popped his whip, and he whistled, and his horse came running by. And he popped that whip again and jumped off into the saddle and rode off in the sunset popping that whip, and I said, damn, look at Lash. That was a moving experience. I sat through that movie three, four more times, you know, just to see old Lash do that. And I went home, you know, and I got me a piece of rope and went up on the garage. <laughs> the little boy next door, my friend John Q, had a pony named Beauty. I said, go saddle up Beauty, John Q. <laughs> and he did, and I said, now walk her past the garage, and he did. And I popped my rope and whistled and leapt into the saddle. And when I hit it, you could have heard me scream in Myrtle Beach. <laughs> Damn, that hurt. <laughs> Thirty minutes later, when I got my breath back, I started wondering about old Lash LaRue now. <laughs> Wonder if he had some kind of surgery or not. You know, I, I still do. I will tell you, I don't know if that was a spiritual experience I got, but I'm damn sure I've never forgotten it, I'll tell you that. You used to old man Lucas would come by the house, you know, going down to slop the hogs with his old wooden wheelbarrow. And he'd call me, you know, and I'd go out there and jump in with the hog slop and ride on down to the hog pen with Mr. Lucas. And while he slopped the hogs, I'd go over and play in the creek and wade in it, you know, and drink some of that cool water out of the creek. And those are the days when you could do it. I wouldn't try it now. And catch a few crawdads, you know. No one's supposed to take off my shoes till May the 1st. That was the rule. If you take them off before May the 1st, you got a whipping, you know? But Mama wasn't there. 
So I'd take them off and wade, and sometimes I'd walk along that path, you know, and I'd head on home, and I'd think, man, it is good. The sun feels good. That dirt feels so good on my feet. You know, I just bead. You know what I mean? I could just be when I was a kid. I don't know when it was that I quit being and started pretending, but it was pretty early because I started lying shortly after I started talking. But I know how to be today. And if you want to know what rigorous honesty is, in my opinion, being what you are. No pretense, no mask, no role. Just be. It's hard, but it's the truth. I remember some days I'd go around and I'd jump up in the Cheney ball tree in the side yard and I'd do some deep thinking. Y'all ever do any deep thinking when you was little? You know? And I'd think about my daddy and my mama and Lena and John Q and Bill Jr. and Martha and Betty and old man Lucas. And I loved them. And I'd say, you know, I ain't much, but I got some good people around me. You know, and that's nice. But something very important is missing, and I don't know what it is. But if I ever find it, everything's going to be okay. I wish I knew where to look. It was like my friend Johnny H. says. It's like I had a big hole in the middle of me with the wind blowing through it, an empty space, a void that needed filling. I was a young boy, and I was longing for something deep within me. And I wasn't the only one. Any Catholics in here, you had a saint named Augustine. And Augustine, I don't know if he sat in the Cheney, Cheney ball tree, and, but he said, you've made us for yourself, dear Lord, and our souls are restless till they rest in you. He was longing. And the psalmist, as the deer pants after those clear streams of water, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God for the living God. He was longing. But see, they knew what they were longing for. And then Carl Jung, who had so much to do with this program, talked about a secret unrest that gnaws at the roots of our being. And Dr. William Silkworth, in the doctor's opinion, described alcoholics, did he not, as being restless, irritable, and discontented. That means something. And this longing has been described in music. Country music describes it very well. An old song by Mel Tillis, which is a country classic called Detroit City. You ever listen to it? Home folks think I'm big in Detroit City. From the letters that I write, they think I'm fine. By day I make the cars, at night I make the bars. If only they could read between the lines. I want to go home. I want to go home. Lord, how I want to go home. And so did I. And so did you, and so do all people. This longing, this longing deep inside of me is the essence of what spirituality is all about, as far as I'm concerned. And you see, the program told me I was spiritually sick also. And I didn't understand that for a long time, and so I started reading very carefully in chapter 5. And I started reading on page 60, about the middle of the page. And they started describing me very quickly like an actor who wants to run the whole show. is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. And I tried to do that. 
and you rebelled, and I resented you. And this resentment, says our program, shut me off from you and from God. And to be disconnected and separated and isolated in that way is to be spiritually sick. And I was unconnected to anyone. Don't know if that makes sense to you. It does to me. We went to the Baptist church every Sunday and every Monday and every Wednesday and every Thursday. The Baptist had something going on all the time. And I remember my mama always put on her war clothes on Sunday. Did your mama put on her war clothes? She always wore dark colors to church, which made me think God liked dark colors. You understand? And mama put on a corset. I'm not talking about a girdle. I still laugh about this with her. Put on a corset. One of them things you string up in the back. She'd blow all the breath out of her body and string up that damn corset. She couldn't breathe. And then she had a bra with hormones, you know, and she'd string that thing on. And she couldn't breathe at all and pull on that old black dress, you know, and the only thing she could move with her head looked like a buzzard sitting on a fence, looking like this, you know. She couldn't breathe, so she couldn't close her mouth. So it looked like she's always grinning. The people at church thought she was happy. I wanted to say, hell, Mama can't breathe. We went to church there one day, and I was sitting in the pew beside her, you know, in my little blue suit with the short pants and the starch white collar and that blue cap on the back of my pudding head. And the choir was singing gospel music, and they was getting down, and the preacher already got down. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it was like the nicest, warmest shower came down around me I'd ever felt in my life. And I started crying, and the chill bumps spread all over my body. And I said to myself, this is it. This is what I was looking for in the Cheney Ball tree. This is wonderful. Nothing's missing. I hope it never goes away. It was gone. It was a real spiritual experience. I've never forgotten that. When I was 15 years old, I was in a hotel room in Greensboro, North Carolina, with my running buddies at the time. Boots, Junk, Ducky, Harold, and Egghead. And they called a cab driver and gave him seven dollars and a half. And he came back in a little while and he had a bottle filled with brown liquid in his hand and the label on it said Cream of Kentucky. And I said, Egghead, what do we do with this stuff? And he says, Sweet Lips was my name by then. <laughs> drink a water glass of it as fast as you can. Then drink a glass of water and then do it again. I followed directions to the letter. I walked in front of the bathroom mirror and watched myself take my first drink, and I can picture it in my mind right now. Want to guess what happened? It's like the nicest, warmest shower came down around me. I don't remember if I cried or not, but I remember saying, this is it. I'm never going to be without this stuff again. And that very night when my friends passed out, I called the cab driver. I gave him $7 and a half, and I got me a pint of cream of Kentucky. I had found the answer at last. And for the next 15 years, with all of my heart, soul, mind, and energy, I tried to recapture that feeling again. And guess what? It never happened. Alcohol made a fool out of me. It created the illusion that I was somewhere I wasn't, that I was somebody I wasn't, that everything was okay when it wasn't. And it was powerful. And it was spiritually powerful. That was not an emotional experience I had. That was a spiritual experience. And it was real. 
And a lot of people would look at me when I was drinking and say, he's avoiding reality. He's running from reality. I wasn't running from anything. I was running after another one of those experiences as hard as I could. God, I wanted it. The best thing I ever had. When I was 16 and 17, I was being locked up regularly in the Wake County Jail in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, my mother was a hostess at Tabernacle Baptist Church and my father a deacon for 55 years. And their son was making the social pages every other day drunk and disorderly, resisting arrest, drunk driving, and I hated me more, and I became more afraid, and I became more angry, and I felt more like a loser. It took me a long time to learn something. If I believe I'm a loser, that is precisely what I will be. By the time I was 23, I'd had over a thousand stitches taken in my face alone as a result of drinking. And I was still telling myself the alcoholic's lie. Someday, somehow, if I can just handle it right, I'm going to recapture that experience. It's amazing. The power of that illusion, they talk about it in the big book and say it's astonishing. Some people pursue it to the gates of insanity or even death. I almost did. I shudder tonight to think about how close I came to dying chasing that illusion. That magic that I found in alcohol. First with Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 23 years old. I was a college student. I don't remember why I went. I, did, I guess I was hurting or some, some problem was up or I was suffering and I just needed some help. And I, so I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went in the meeting, and on one side, you know, there were 12 steps, and on the other side, 12 traditions, and a guy up front had a blue book in front of him, and everybody was listening to him, you know, and I said to myself with my great intellectual mind, all you got to do is memorize those steps, memorize those traditions, memorize what's in that book, and they'll put you up front and listen to you. You'll be president of Alcoholics Anonymous in six months. See, I've always had this thing about control. I like to go for the top. That's a control position. You all understand that? I know none of you are that way. I do know if I pull the bus of life into this room tonight, everybody in here would go for the damn steering wheel. <laughs> I like to drive. And so I studied the book, and I committed it to memory. I have a partial photographic memory, and I could quote the book to you. And they put me up front, and they listened to me. And I delivered some of the windiest dissertations on theology and metaphysics and theosophy and various other kinds of bullshit that you ever heard in your life. The only thing I couldn't do was stay sober. When the book says self-knowledge won't fix it, I learned that the hard way. I almost died. I met some hateful people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Most of them was ugly, profane, and old. And they called them old-timers. We had one in a group up there in Burlington, North Carolina, where I started going. His name was Bill C., and I called him Grumpy, and I hated his guts. Man could read me like he had X-ray vision. I don't believe kryptonite would have stopped him. He attacked me when I'd come in the room. You know, he'd point his finger at me and call me boy, and I didn't like that. And I'd come in the room, he'd say, How you doing, boy? I'd say, Fine. And he would start with the profanity. 
and back me into a corner and tell me how I was doing. He could read me like a book, scared me. And the man was dumb. He talked in circles, you know. Talked things like, boy, you can't think your way into good living. You've got to live your way into good thinking. And I think to myself, shut up, you old bastard. I'm smarter than you are. I didn't say it out loud because I was scared of the man. You understand? And boy, he'd say, how come you're always running around looking for God? He ain't lost. Oh, I love that one. And I was a lot smarter than he was. I mean, he's sitting in the group, you know, second chair from the wall, second row. That's where he's sitting. Every Tuesday night at discussion meeting, he'd rattle his chains and pull his nose, had an ugly nose, and he'd run his hand through his hair and say the same thing every Tuesday night. And then would come my turn. And I'd been reading philosophy all day. And I'd say, Martin Buber said so-and-so, and Paul Tillich said so-and-so, and he'd turn around and say, shut up, boy. Can't tell you how many times I got drunk at Grumpy. And I had to get him on my side. See, when you don't like yourself, other people have got to. And when somebody's against you, you've got to get them on your side. I don't know if the rest of you think that way, but that's the way I thought. So I went on what I called a 12-step call. I found an alcoholic in a log cabin with no indoor plumbing, been in there drunk for two months. He was turning blue. I got him off to the hospital, got a woman down the road to help me, and we shoveled out, swept out, and raked out, and washed out that old log cabin. And I got him back from the hospital, and he was going to live, and that cabin was clean, and I called Grumpy because I wanted him to come see what I had done so he would like me. And then going through all that mess in that cabin, I found a gallon of wine, and we got there, me and that guy both was drunk. And he was underwhelmed by the whole thing. I used to call for help when it was too late. Y'all never did that, did you? <laughs> All the liquor's gone, test patterns out on TV. I think, well, shit, I need some help. I called Grumpy one morning about 3 o'clock before I could say a word. He said, boy, don't you ever call me again, drunk. He said, matter of fact, don't you ever call me again. He said, if you want to get sober, you know where we meet and don't call me to come get you. You can walk. And frankly, I don't care if you ever get sober. I'm a very sensitive human being. <laughs> and he wounded me deeply when he said that. And I bless him for it. I bless him for it to this day. And you know, if you're waiting for these old timers to change, you might as well give it up. Last time I saw Grumpy, I'd been sober 18 years. And he was laying on his deathbed, dying with bone cancer. And I walked in his hospital room, and he saw me, and the finger came up, and he said to me, Boy, you'll never make it. <laughs> I drank on until I was 30 years old. So that's seven years in the program. The longest I ever stayed dry was 89 days. And I knew it was 89 days because I wanted a red chip. We give a red poker chip in North Carolina for 90 days sobriety. And I had one pasted on the calendar. And I was going to get it because that would make me somebody. I was forever confusing the symbol with the reality. I wanted a red chip so bad when the meeting was over, I've been up to the chip box and stolen a red chip. And I was working the steps. I skipped over all of them except part of the 11th step. I knew all about prayer, so I got into meditation. And I found out who the greatest meditators on the face of the earth were, these guys that shaved their head, you know, and wore orange bathrobes and 
crossed their legs real funny and sat on the ground and chanted, Oh. I looked around. I couldn't find an orange bathrobe anywhere. And I'm too vain to shave the hair off my head. And by this time, I'd had so many wrecks driving drunk, I could get into lotus position, but I couldn't get out of it. So I put on my old dirty blue tear cloth drinking liquor bathrobe with the cigarette burns on it. Y'all probably had one. And got my wife to help me cross my legs and sit on the floor, and I sat there enchanted, waiting for my spiritual awakening to happen. God's got a terrific sense of humor. <laughs> I see him up there now saying to Peter, there he is. Peter says, who? He said, Puddinghead. sitting down there in that nasty bathrobe again. Boy, that thing stinks. Tell me, Peter, what does oh mean anyway? This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. And two will continue in just a moment. You know what Puddin's wanting? He's wanting me to give him a lightning bolt. And I got plenty. But if I gave him one, he wouldn't like the color. My arrogance had gotten to the point where I was telling God what was good for me. That was my praying, if you will. And almost died. I came to on or about July 20th, 1965. And I knew that I couldn't drink. And this time it wasn't a head knowledge. I knew it in my heart. And I think for the first time in my life I knew I couldn't quit. And I began to understand what powerlessness was all about. If I can't do it, and I can't quit doing it, I'm powerless. And I knew I was going to die. And by this time, I had no driver's license, and I was never supposed to drive again in the state of North Carolina as long as I lived, and I was on five years probation. I had a two-year active sentence hanging over my head. And I walked back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I made a profit out of Grumpy. And I'm going to tell you something tonight, and it scares me. Had it been left up to this mind, I probably would have never come back to you. But my ego was smashed. Bottom was the most wonderful place on the face of the earth for me. Do you understand what I mean? The most terrible, but the most wonderful. Because I came face to face with the truth, and I could not avoid it. And God, it scared me. It scared me enough to cut off the thinking mechanism and put on my shoes. I bless my feet. Does that sound funny to you? James Taylor, boy, writes some music from over in North Carolina. Got a one of his songs, he got some words in it that says, I guess my feet know where they want me to go. Mine did. And they brought me back to you. They didn't bring the intellectual back. They brought a badly beaten drunk who was ready to take directions. Guys in the group found out I was not able to drive. I went to a meeting every night for the first two years I was sober, and I didn't have a driver's license. Somebody pulled up in front of my house every night. And they said strange things to me. I knew they didn't mean them. They said, we like you. You know, we're glad you're here. 
We need you. And I'd think, man, that's nice of them to say that. I know they don't mean it. And if they knew me, they certainly wouldn't say things like that. But it was so nice to hear it. And I kept going. And I kept going. And I kept going. And I'd sit on the back. And, you know, I'd come late and I'd leave early. But I kept going. And I did that for a while. And I saw this man in the group one night. And I liked the way he moved. And I liked the way he talked. And most of all, I liked his eyes. They just brighted right out of his head, and he looked right at me when he talked to me. And I went up beside him, and I said, I'm Tom, and I don't want to die. Will you be my sponsor? You know what he said? Boy, I've heard about you. <laughs> they tell me you're not just an alcoholic. They tell me you're crazy. But I'll help you on one condition. And I said, what's that? He said, we'll do it my way. And I don't know but one way, and it's in this book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the condition. And I said, yes, sir, please. You ever notice how brilliant your sponsor is before you ask him to be your sponsor? And then when you ask him, he goes dumb on you immediately? Well, that's what he did. He said, the first thing I want you to do is come to meetings early, and I want you to go around and shake everybody's hand and ask them how they're doing. I said, I don't want to come to meetings early. I don't want to shake their hands. I don't care how they're doing. And why do I have to do that? And he said, boy, you don't ask me why. You do what I tell you to do. A lot of people go through treatment centers now, and they have a counselor, okay? And they confuse a sponsor with a counselor. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I have a master's degree in counseling. I hope you're impressed by that. <laughs> but if I asked you to go to meetings early and shake everybody's hand and ask them, my next question to you would be, how does that make you feel? My sponsor didn't give a tinker's damn how it made me feel. He really did, but he kept saying to me, if you'll take the motion, the emotion will come. Motion, emotion, effort, result, effort, result. I heard that till I was sick of it. I used to do things he told me to do just to prove him wrong, and he was never wrong. He's not that smart. But he was a whale of a channel for the only creative intelligence in this universe, God. I sober six months, they called up Grumpy. The Tom been sober six months. Grumpy said, you're a lie. <laughs> so why don't you come down and see him get his chip? He said, I got the flu. But I'd get off my deathbed to see that. And he came. And I kept doing what I was told. People say, how do I know when I've surrendered? In my opinion, when you take the directions your sponsor gives you and carry them out and maybe do a little more, you're in surrender. If you balk at any of it, he goes back, baby. Sponsor's a guide. Sponsor's a guide. I can go to the finest fishing hole in this world with the finest equipment and the finest boat and fish for weeks and never catch anything. But I can go down there and get an old boy that knows that lake and say, I want to catch some bass. He'll say, okay, and he'll take me where the bass are. And that's what a sponsor is. He knows where the fish are. And he can take me there. And he doesn't have to be a rocket scientist to do it. He has to be a person who has trudged this path and found the fish. And if he hadn't done that, he can't sponsor anybody. Time passed. My first year of sobriety was coming, and my ego was back big time. I was listening to my wife and my sponsor argue about who was going to give me a party. Now, people had argued about me before, but it was like, what hospital are we going to put him in this time, you know? And I'm tickled, man, and I'm back there in the bedroom writing my speech, my acceptance speech. 
Oh, it was a beauty. <laughs> Laughter and tears and everything built right into it, you know. <laughs> and I got up at night and picked up my chip and I started crying and I couldn't stop. And that wonderful speech went to waste. I used to bawl all the time. First year I was sober, all I'd do is cry. They asked me to read how it works, I'd cry. People think it's easy for Tom to get up there and talk in front of people. You know, God gave me one gift. I'm a ham. Do you understand that? And I'm not ashamed to say that. I mean that. That's my gift, and I'm going to use that gift. But when I first got in this program, when they asked me to read something, you know, I would, I'd, I'd, I'd break up and I'd start crying, and my sponsor would come up and say, That's all right, son, sit down. Your time will come. And I couldn't read two lines in the book without forgetting the second before I got to, through with the first. Any of y'all having that problem? And it just bugged me because I'm such a perfectionist. I've got to do everything right. And my sponsor says, if you can't understand but one line, read one line. You've been demanding too much of yourself your entire life. Why don't you cut yourself some slack? Read one line and think about it, boy. Walk around and think about it. Then go back and read the next one. Do what you can do. Don't demand more. That same night, I picked up my one-year chip. They kept counting. And a little gray-haired man in the back of the room, I'd never noticed him, came up and picked up a 25-year chip. I had the same anniversary as Wilson Booty, who's now dead, who would be sober 52 years in July had he not died, who had practiced this program to the extent he didn't have to say a word. I could go into his presence just torn to pieces and he'd light his pipe and look at me and smile. And I was fine, thank you. I want to be that way someday. See, I still need heroes. So do you. And I've had them in this program, and I've had them in abundance. You know, my sponsor, Harry, who's got Alzheimer's now. And Bob W. and Chuck C. and Jack B. And I could go on and name him Grumpy. Yeah, he's one of my idols. One of my heroes. We need heroes. I need people to emulate. The young people coming in this program need heroes that they can look at, not idolize, but emulate. Heroes who clearly show their feet of clay and don't pretend. Don't need silver bullets and pearl handle 38s because they're carriers of the grace of God. And I kept staying sober and I kept changing. And people who had known me for years didn't know me anymore. I mean, even physically they didn't know me anymore. I go back to my 25th high school reunion, and the lady who's welcoming people is a girl I used to go with, and she said, who are you? I was glad she forgot. <laughs> and that night at the banquet, you know, I was a class drunk and screw-up, and that night at the banquet, who they asked to say grace? Me. And the next day at a dedication ceremony at the old high school, who they asked to do the benediction? The drunk. And my old high school principal, who I hated because he whipped me one time, came running up to me. I thought, oh, Lord. And he said, Tommy, are you a minister? And I said, no, sir. I'm a drunk. And he said, something's happened to you. And then here come his old secretary. I hated her worse than I hated him. Woman come up, put lipstick all over my face. 
said, I love you, I love you. I thought you'd have been dead a long time ago. I said, why? She said, you were the angriest young boy I have ever known in my entire life. And I thought you'd have killed yourself or been killed by now. And the program's brought me a long way. That father of mine that I consider my number one hero. When I was 18 years old, a judge gave me a choice. Go to service or go to jail. And I got real patriotic. And I joined the United States Air Force. And this daddy who adored me took me down to put me on the bus to go off to the service. And while he was telling me how much he loved me, he had his hand planted firmly on my butt, pushing me on that bus. He wanted me out of his life, and I don't blame him. And he and I became such good friends after I got sober. And I had the opportunity to be with him while he died. And died with lung cancer. And it was not pretty. I saw suffering such as I've never seen. But I saw strength that I couldn't believe. And the day before he died, he turned over and asked me, was he going to die? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, when? I said, the doctor says it will be soon. Does that frighten you? And he says, yeah, but I learned a long time ago. When you're afraid, you give the fear to God and go about your business. Surprised me that a non-AA member would know such things. Then he looked at me and he said, son, I love you. You're one of the finest men I have ever known. If I never get another word of praise my entire life, I've had it. I don't need it. The one I most adored respected me. Now, I've got to tell you, I've probably made about every mistake a person could make in this program. Grumpy was right and Harry was right. I was sicker than the average bear. But God has always been with me. And the program got in me real early. And it won't let go. And it never has. And life the last three years has not been kind to me. Four surgeries, cancer, deep venous thrombophlebitis, my sponsor getting Alzheimer's, my mother getting Alzheimer's, almost going into bankruptcy. And you know what? It's okay. The cancer's gone. It's gone. I got some money in the bank. I love my mother. I love my sponsor. Everything works out when I let it. And God is still hard to let it sometimes. Sometimes I just want to get in my high chair and beat it with a spoon, you know, and say, do it and do it now and do it my way. But I can't get away with that anymore. Like a friend of mine used to say, I've been found out. I have found me out. And I can't get away with this stuff anymore. And most of the time, my heart overflows with gratitude for this way of life and this program and for the people in it. You see? Spiritual teachers were kind of strange people, you know that? seemed like they were talking nonsense a lot of times. I was always looking for God. I didn't want nothing to do with people. Any of y'all that way? God will solve my problems. I'll talk to God. I don't want anything to do with them. And the spiritual teachers, including the ones who put together our program, said it's not that way, Tom. 
There's a vertical line that goes from you to God. But there's a horizontal line that goes from you to your brother and your sister. And unless you walk that horizontal line, you will never meet God. One of them said, how are you going to love God if you can't get along with your brother and sister who stand right in front of you? He said again, if you're on your way to church to worship God and you remember you have something against your brother, you better go straighten out with your brother. Love God, he said, but love your neighbor as yourself. And the message of this program for me is summed up in this way. The 12 steps move me along that horizontal line. You know what I mean? I remove, have God remove the resentments I have against you. And when they're removed, lo and behold, there he is. I make amends to you, not to God. And once they're made, there he is again. I move along the horizontal line, and God likes it so good that he kind of joins in, you know? And where those two lines cross, that's it, man. That's where I always wanted to be. I'm home. And the only way I can be there is love you. It's the only way I can be there. Not like you, love you. So many of us think love is a feeling. Romantic love is. It's a combination of hormones and feelings, you know? The problem with it is when the hormones drop and the feelings go away, everybody gets divorced. That is not the kind of love this program's talking about. This program is talking about spiritual love, agape love, unconditional love. Which means I accept you just like you are. My attitude toward you will be positive. I respect you and your opinions whether I agree with them or not. And my behavior toward you will be responsible. Love's not a feeling. Love's an action. And if I'm out there loving, you know, God just really likes that. And he jumps right in. And I get mad at God still. I say, why can't I feel that good all the time? And I can almost hear him saying, because I'm no fool. <laughs> if I let you be that high all the time, you'd be bored with it in three or four days. <laughs> so I just kind of hold back on it, you know, so I can keep you out there loving. Go on out there and love your ass off, boy. I'll hit you every now and again with that warm shower. Just go out there and love your ass off. <laughs> so I do it. Anybody don't want to. My sponsor says, and I got another one. You mad at somebody? Go love them. You holding something against somebody? Go love them. Love them. Love them. Love them. They may not change, but you sure will. And things are different. I don't know what I've said tonight. Don't even care. I guess I said what I was supposed to say. But I do want to close with the words of a song that a friend of mine gave me a tape of one time and said, this reminds me of you. And the songwriter was a friend of hers named Eddie Kilburn. And he had written this song as a dialogue that he was having with some folks, and I'd like to do it tonight as a dialogue between me and my son and my two daughters and my mother, who conceived me as a Baptist preacher and still wishes I were one. And if I can remember the words, let me share them with you. My oldest daughter is Crystal, and I love Crystal. And she says, Daddy, why aren't you famous? I said, Christy, I think I am. Because all the people you see here tonight came out here to give me a hand. But their applause isn't what really matters. It's what I can feel from their hearts. And if tonight I made dreamers of some who had lost them or made friends with a few who were scared, or if there's one new believer who came here, a critic, and I told him that somebody cared, then Christy, I always feel famous, though I'm not seen on TV.
I get all the attention my ego can handle doing this live and for free. Yeah, I do it live and for free. My daughter Frances says, but Daddy, why are you lonely? And I said, Frances, I guess I am. Because there are a few people that I miss tonight who aren't here to give me a hand. But you know, in some ways they're closer than the people out on my front row. And if I'm quiet, I can hear Grumpy's heart beating rhythm and see Harry driving his car. And there are preachers and poets that I never met like Bill Wilson who hasn't gone far. So I'm alone, but I'm not really lonely. I just have a group you can't see. They give me all the companionship my faith can handle doing this talking with me. You see, they do this talking with me. And my son says, but Daddy, I think you're crazy. And I said, Jason, that's what keeps me sane. I was born with a strange sense of humor to go with a strong sense of pain. And I found that there's nothing so serious that it can't hold its own in a joke. So I may smile at stories about people suffering and laugh about losing my hat and make people think I give talks without answers because I tease them and hide where they're at. But I also like things that are simple. And a smile is the last thing you'll see on the face of this crazy old outlaw laughing out loud because I'm me. I laugh like this because I'm free. And then Mama says, But Tommy, do you love Jesus? And I said, Mother, doesn't it show? She said, I've been listening to you for an hour, and frankly, I've got to say no. <laughs> because if you did, you'd be famous. Big concerts and Christian TV. You'd be so well-known that you'd never get lonely, you'd never be crazy or weird, but you've got to give up making talks without answers, and you ought to shave off that old beard. I said, well, I love you too, Mother. But you sure found it different than me. You see, I do my best, and I do it like Jesus because he did it live and for free. Thank you.